Welcome to Speaking Candidly with Candace, your voice for mental health and personal growth. I'm your host, Candace Schoner, and today I will be talking with Charlie Burton, who is an activist with over 10 years experience representing the trans community. He is also a motivational speaker and author of The Boy Beneath My Skin, a black trans man living in the South. Welcome, Charlie, to the podcast. Candace, thank you. Welcome. Uh, thank you. I'm so welcome to be here. Uh, I'm excited. Well, we're excited to have you, and I'm going to have you briefly, if you would, describe your childhood and what it was like growing up in the South. Sure. So um, I'm a native of Charlottesville in Albemarle County. I uh, lived in North Garden uh, all my life. Uh, so as a child, um, you know, I'm, my, my, my book, the first few chapters are very tough read because it talks about uh, the extreme abuse that I received from an uncle uh, very young and the mental illness that associated with that, that abuse was basically um, I suffered from a dissociative disorder. And if people don't know what a dissociative disorder is, it's that I call it a uh, protective shield that I had that as things were happening to me by the hand of him, I created characters in my head to protect my mental status of at that particular time uh, I was female and that, that, that child was Charlotte. Um, and so a, a lot of people don't understand. They, they, they associate this disorder with the movies that they've seen of, uh, I can't even remember the name of it. Where person, yes, Rebel, yeah. yes, with all the 17, 18 personalities in my head turning. That wasn't it. Uh, for me, it was a protective thing that I had these characters. Um, as I got older, that mental illness continued. Uh, and I'll back up a little bit. I think one of the reasons I started drinking the way I did was a lot of different things, the disorder, the disorder being one, the abuse, um, but also I struggled with my, uh, I, my gender identity. You know, at age eight, uh, my mother and I had this huge fight in which she threatened to put me on the steps of the hospital because I just wasn't the girl that, that I was supposed to be. And oh. she said, you know, she said, if you continue to act like this, we'll just put you on the steps of the hospital and let them sew a thing on you so you could be a boy. And Although that was scary hearing that, I was thinking to myself in that car, this is exactly what I want you to do, because this is exactly who I am. So I suffered from the whole identity disorder as well. Uh, it wasn't until I got sober. And actually, this is my sober month, May 22nd. Uh, I will have been sober 17 years. And the only way I got sober was by walking into the rooms of AA here in Charlottesville. Uh, I tried a lot of different other things, but nothing worked until I got into AA. But AA wasn't the complete fix for me, not even with the dissociative disorder at, you know, in, in four, at age 40 plus. Um, there was a lot of therapy that I had to do. Um, and one of the things that I do as an activist and advocate for my community, especially the young black trans men, is that I push for that, that therapy before they even really start considering um, uh, transition. We're changing our body, you know, right. we're changing the way we think. And we all have those skeletons that we're pushing back in that closet so young. Uh, we find that the statistically a lot of uh, 
people who have gender uh, identity disorders have been abused. And so that's not what makes you want to uh, change your gender, but that is a piece of it. Uh, for me, I can only speak for me. That was a piece of it that that made me uh, suffer all these years. And once I was able to accept and move on, uh, I started to grow. Long answer for you, but there you go. That's okay. Very complete answer. Let me go back to talking about when you were eight and your mother was going to drop you off. Mm -hmm. Can you so explain... You know, I know that in your book, you say that you knew you were different at age eight. Mm -hmm. Was that incident with your mother the, the eye-opener for you? And can you explain how you, that you wasn't you were different? No, Candace, that wasn't even the eye-opener because yet another strike against me being authentically who I was was that, let's be for real, I'm in Charlottesville. This is a part of the South. And so what's the big staple for African-Americans in the South? Church. Right. Okay. So I had to sit in church at age eight, all the way up to my 40s. And listen, wow. that, you know, first of all, I thought I was a lesbian. And I wonder why the lesbian thing wasn't working because I wasn't, you know, but right. I had to try it. And so at age eight, I knew I was different. Um, I, I knew, and I Indifferent meaning, uh, I was like this little shy kid, uh, and I didn't, I didn't blossom. I didn't understand why, you know, my girlfriends were giggling at boys on the playground. The girls wouldn't play with me. The guys wouldn't play with me. So I played with my characters right. at the merry-go-round at Red Hill Elementary School. And so at age eight, I knew something was different. And I knew my mother knew something was different. She didn't know, and I didn't know. Honestly, I didn't even know what a trans person was, man or woman, until I was with my ex. And uh, she was very involved in Chesapeake, Virginia, with the MCC church. And so I remember the first time I walked in this church, I zeroed in on this guy. And when we got back in the car, I said, what's up with this guy? He said, oh, he's transitioning. And I had to look at her and say, well, what does that mean? Because being here in Charlottesville, if you saw it, you didn't know. Or if you saw it, you didn't talk about it. Right. And so at age eight, I just knew I loved being on the tractor and doing all the little boy stuff with my father, who allowed me to do that with him. And that was that struggle between my mother and my father, to finally, I think my mother, through my sister, older sister, just said, let her live whatever way she wants to live. And so we still, you know, we still had the weddings that I had to be in, which was traumatic, wearing this gown as a flower girl. Um, uh, but they sort of kind of gave in to because I think they could see that if they didn't, it was going to be really detrimental to me. How old were you when they kind of caved in or, or accepted you? About 10 or 11, about 10 or 11. And then the problem hit at age 12. I had my first blackout from drinking something called black bear wine at a family cookout. And I, I blacked out. And I, the next day, my cousins were telling me all the stuff I was doing. But what I realized was that drinking, I was beginning to be accepted. 
And so almost like people describe, if you've heard anyone describe what it's like smoking crack cocaine for the first time, and it's not so much the cocaine that, that makes you addicted, is that you're running after that first initial high that makes you feel so good. You never get it again. And that was what happened with me with drinking and blacking out. I got that blackout. And I thought that was the grandest thing because if you think about it, it was a little bit like being in a dissociative state. Mm. So I started, you know, drinking at age 12 and did not stop until I went into the rooms of AA 17 years ago. So did you hide your drinking or did you drink openly Mm -hmm. with everybody? Oh, I was open. By the time I was 15, 16, 17, any of my friends that are still around, I, I was the first graduate uh, graduating class at Western Alma High School. I was voted. Here's a shy kid in the beginning. And so now I'm voted most unforgettable. And I'm voted most unforgettable because what I was known for with my classmates, I was the partier. I was the one that got the drunkest. I was the one that was able to get the alcohol. I was the one who was able to get the pot. Uh, I wasn't known for my academic status. And so what I was known for in the halls of my high school was that I drank a lot. At age 17, uh, something happened. Uh, And that thing I talk about in my book, uh, I went out and um, I skipped school one day. And I'm I'm at the 7-Eleven right there on Ivy Road. And this man pulls up and asks if I want to go drinking. And I said, yes. Mm. And I get in this stranger's car and we went to uh, on the parkway. And it was in January, February. But when we got to the parkway, it was just so icy. And this man raped me in his car. Oh, my gosh. And so, again, there's that alcohol that. If I had not had that alcohol in me, I would not have gotten in that car. And so that was the dangerous life. Um, I ended up uh, from that just really flipping out. And there used to be a hospital, private psychiatric hospital in Charlottesville called uh, David C. Wilson. It was up on Arlington Boulevard. Right, I know. Right. And my parents put me in uh, David C. Wilson. I remember at 17, sitting outside the door, listening to the psychiatrist, because back in those days, there were no therapists. You just went to a psychiatrist for everything. You talked to the psychiatrist 15 minutes. He wrote your medication. And uh, the psychiatrist at David C. Wilson said, we've done some extensive psychological testing on her. And um, she thinks she's a boy. But there are things that we can do to make her feel like she's a girl. And one of those things was uh, ECT. So for those who don't know what ECT is, it's electric shock therapy. Right. And so at age 17, I had about nine. And I went through the electric shock therapy nine weeks, eight or nine weeks. Um, that, of course, I remember nothing. And so, you know, again, what happened was in my mind, it's 18 years old, 17, 18 years old. It's it's a bad thing to think that I'm something different. Right. You know, it was bad enough being a, what I thought was a lesbian, but now it's even worse for me to even voice to anyone. At this point, I thought I had the safety of the, the, the mental health community to say that I was different. And, you know, it wasn't until years later that I realized that 
uh, a you know uh, homosexuality was still in the DSM right as well as a gender identity disorder and so I learned how to just stop it I just learned how to just you know uh, I remember being called all kinds of different names you know uh, bull dagger you know all these different derogatory names associated with what I look like but I I, I learned quickly you know from eight I'm going to be thrown on the steps at University of Virginia Hospital you know it's 17 you know I expressed to someone who had me look at these ink spots that I thought I was different and this is what has happened and so I learned quickly that um, I, I, I can't be what I thought I was going to be and so the best thing I can do is just drink. So I treated myself. I would, I, I've had close to 75 psychiatric admissions between wow. UVA and then the granddaddy of them all was Western State. When I woke up on a floor, on a mat in this huge day room because they didn't have a bed in Western State Hospital, I realized then, you know, this is, this is not good. Uh, I remember meeting with this German doctor at Western State who told me the best that he could do for me was for me to take this medication and that they were going to discharge me and for me to sign up for the clubhouse and go to the clubhouse every day for people like me and learn how to make things. And maybe one day, he said, maybe one day you'll be able to um, hold down, you know, a, mean, a minimum job, he said, one that's not going to stress me out because this was the best I was going to be able to do in life. Uh, I would love to see that doctor now. I don't even know where he's at, but I would love to see that doctor now and tell him that I, 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 I beat the odds. You uh, certainly did. I mean, yeah, you definitely proved the them wrong. Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me ask you, when you went to the hospital the first time, Mm-hmm. Did you dress as a boy or did you still dress as a girl? And no, my parents were, my mother was allowing me to, um, uh, there used to be a store in Crozet called Eljo's. And for, and I would, uh, I would buy, uh, I would work in the summer. I, I, uh, I got out of the hospital and that summer I worked pumping gas at our local store. So I had money, I had a car and uh, I would go over to Crozet and, I, and it was the men's shop, and I was so at home. I was so at home. And I would buy, you know, the big thing back in those days were the Izod, the alligators, they wouldn't call them shirts. Right, and, right. And so I was able, my parents, my mother let me, um, she, I, I think she just finally gave up. I think she just finally gave up and said, there's no fighting with this. So I was able to dress, you know, track suits and jeans and stuff. That was my, that was, that was in my closet. Those were the clothes in my closet. And so there was no pressure uh, from, from any of them for me to dress in any certain way after that. It was just, I think all my parents wanted was me to be happy and they didn't know what was going to make me happy. And them being older parents and them being in the area that they were in all they knew is that it was wrong that's what they learned from the bible that's what they learned from the pulpit of the church but this was my child and i have to love my child as best as i can i'm sure that that means a great deal to you now and even it back does. then 
Yes. What about you said, I think you mentioned you had a sister. Is that correct? Yes, I have a sister and a brother. I'm the youngest. So I have a sister and a brother. Uh, both are extremely accepting now who I am. Both of them. Uh, my entire family. Uh, on down to the, my immediate family. Uh, even the people in the neighborhood. I'm, I'm back here in North Garden again. So even the people in the neighborhood. Uh, if they're saying something, I don't hear it. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's one of those don't ask, don't tell type things with the church. I can sit there and listen to you preach about uh, burning in hell and uh, how it's wrong. Uh, I can give my money, but uh, I'm not going to be an active participant in church. And that's a lot of what goes on uh, then and still now. Uh, I would say that I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person. As uh, Having said that, uh, uh, I've met a wonderful woman, uh, and uh, I uh, go to her church sometimes in Maryland. It's a Presbyterian church. It's very open and affirming, and um, it's uh, it's very nice to be able to be. I, I, again, I'm not a really big religious person, but it's nice to be able to sit in a religious congregation that accepts me for for who I am now. I'm not even sure the people in that congregation know that I'm trans. Uh, and that's a whole nother story in that I've gotten to the point where I'm still an activist. I'm still an advocate. But uh, that label trans is not the first thing I want people to see. I want people to see a black man. And I want people to see that I can be sane, successful, and uh, of service. And that... Um, trans just happens to be a part of who I of an experience that I live. Well, let me ask you this, because I'm glad that you brought that up and that you yeah. would like to just be known as a black man and not necessarily trans and you'd be known for your accomplishments and your successes. Do you think that your life would have been different um, if you were white? I think I would have had better services if I had been. Um, and we have to realize that and I say this all the time, we're, we're in a world where the color of our skin makes a difference. We're in a world where the labels that we check on a box makes a difference. Um, if you are, uh, and we're in a world where your gender makes a difference. Uh, I did not start getting the better management jobs that I am experienced in doing now until I transitioned. And so I now have even more of a respect of what women who are trying to climb the ladder of success, the struggles that they have to be able to do that. Because I got laid, the carpet laid out for me as soon as the man across that table who's doing that hiring doesn't even know until we get to HR that uh, I was once a female. They're looking at a man and saying, oh, yeah, he's going to be able to do that job a lot better than a woman hired. And so I realized that gender makes a difference. Uh, as far as health care, as far as opportunities, I still see that a white man has 15 steps ahead of me. Right. And it's sad. But that's the way the world is. And even more so here in Charlottesville, we cannot ever forget August 12th and what that represented. And we also, we cannot just shove August 12th and say, oh, those people from out of town did this. That was some of us here that live every day and sit in church pews and work in stores and work in offices. 
that were out there too. And so uh, I have to remind myself, um, I shared this at a health summit over the weekend, is that I, when I get up, when I leave my house and get in my car, there used to be uh, during the whole uh, racial unrest, two things that I would say when I got in that car. And that was higher power, God, please get me to where I'm going so I don't get pulled over as a black man. And then if I get pulled over, please, God, please, higher power, don't let them discover that I'm trans uh, because I've got a double whammy on me. You uh, do. A double whammy, which is such a shame because yeah. we're all human and we all we're take all our human. breath of the, from the same air. Exactly, exactly. Let me ask you about the transition because I'm curious when you mm -hmm. decided to make the physical transition and what you, your feelings were like physically and emotionally, if you wouldn't mind describing that. Sure. sure. Um, I was in a, a long-term relationship as a lesbian, and um, it just started going south. Um, that was anger. I was so angry, uh, and anger outbursts, deep depression. Uh, I mean, so depressed that I just didn't want to get out of bed. Uh, there was no intimacy between us. I just couldn't. I couldn't function, and. I just remember, you know, my ex saying, I can't live like this. You know, and she packed up and she left. And so she left me in this house that I couldn't afford. Uh, and I had to leave the house. Uh, and so I'm still in this, this beautiful home that we created. I'm still in this beautiful, almost empty home because I wouldn't feel it. I was too depressed uh, to make it a home. And um, I was seeing a therapist at UVA at the uh, primary care family stress clinic. I was the best I could afford because I didn't have a decent job. And uh, I started writing. I started writing. And a lot of what's in my book was what I was writing that weekend. And, and I wasn't typing it. I was writing. I was writing longhand all weekend, just nonstop, no sleep, uh, you know, I'd stop, I would stop to go to a meeting so that I would make sure I stayed sober. And I would come back home and I would run. Your relationship isn't working out and right. your ex leaves you. Then what yeah. happens? So uh, I, I'm, I'm, I hit another, another downward spiral of depression. I'm closed in this house. But the beauty of community is that I had this AA community that just wouldn't give up. They would call. They would come by the house. They would make sure I was okay. I was going to meetings because I was determined that, uh, and I started getting suicidal. Mm. I was determined that I wasn't going to, if I kill myself, it wasn't going to be that because people say I was drinking. So there's a weekend that I'm just writing and I'm writing and I'm writing and there's no sleep. I would only stop to go to an AA meeting. I'd come back home and I'd just continue to write again. Um, and so now I'm unemployed. I've lost my job. What job I had, I'm unemployed. I'm getting unemployment, which we all know back then, even now probably, unemployment pays nothing. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm living on nothing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm con contemplating signing up for food stamps. I mean, the whole nine yards is just bad. Uh, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, here I am back to where that man said, the best you're going to be able to do. That's where I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. um, so I call my therapist and I have this thick journal, which is a lot of what my first 
three or four chapters are. It's from that journal. It's what Margot took from that journal. Uh, and I leave it that Monday with my therapist. Uh, and then I go to her that Tuesday. And in that journal, what I had written and what I had said in my mind was, I'm in the wrong body. And so we started talking about it. And she said, you do realize what you're saying is you're transgender. And I said, yes. I said, I think this is the last piece of the puzzle for me to be able to get my life. And so even then with working with her, I couldn't get out of this funk of this depression. You know, I'm now missing my ex terribly. Uh, and I'm not sure if I was missing her or just missing the comfort of someone in my life. Sure. Because sure. I, I needed, I, I didn't love myself enough, but I needed someone to love me because I couldn't love. And AA, we have a thing that says, let us love you until you can love yourself. I couldn't, I, I was trying to do that and I still wasn't feeling the love. And so I, I, I got up one morning and just like you and I would just wake up. We wake up a lot of times and we say, what's our plan for the day? And we think about our plan for the day. And I woke up that morning and I said, what's my plan for today? And I said to myself, I'm going to kill myself. Let me look and see how much money I've got because I don't have a gun. So there on the table is the light bill, which is like 200 and some dollars. And I have maybe $30 over in my checking account, just enough to pay the light bill and put some gas in the car and wait until the unemployment drops that Friday. And I go to the pawn shop and I buy this gun and I come back home and I start preparing to kill myself. Mm. I get the towels out. I mean, this big, beautiful, I can still see it now. That kitchen is beautiful. We, we redid the house and, you know, I'm in this kitchen with these skylights and it's just a beautiful day, just like today. But to me, it was the most horrible day of my life. I couldn't see the beauty. And um, I, you know, I put some some towels out. I had some kids renting my basement to try to supplement pain on this house. And I'm hoping that they're going to be the ones to find me, not my sister who lived not too far from me. Um, so I get the gun out. I get the towels. I put the gun in my hand just as I'm getting ready to raise the gun. And this is just people look at me and I'm telling them this is the truth, guys. The doorbell rings. Wow. And, it is, and it is the mailman and he has a package in his hand and he hands me this package. He looks at me like, okay, you know, I'm still female. She's pretty crazy. And he goes back down the steps and I recognize the handwriting on the package is Constance, my ex handwriting. She had been to a conference where they had talked about this first national organization for trans men. I had, we had, sort of had back and forth conversations about, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. It wasn't friendly. It was just business only. Mm -hmm. But I had shared with her in a text that I thought I was trans. And her response back to me was, I think that's what you were all along. So I hope you will explore this. And that was it. That was all the conversation we had. But then she was at this conference uh, for the MCC church uh, that she saw either Con Carter Brown, who was the founder of this, or someone there with the stuff at the table. And she packs this, this envelope up and she sends it to me. And so I sit down and I'm reading and I'm thinking, this is me. Hmm. This, is, this is me. 
you know, this is a black, you know, you mean there are black men who have transitioned, this is me. And, and so I shake the envelope and this card falls out and it's Carter's business card. And I, I, I immediately called him and we talked and we talked and at the end of the conversation. I said, you know what, man, I was thinking about killing myself today. And so Carter said, well, you, we, in our conversation, you said you're in AA, right? And I said, yes. He said, well, can you go to a meeting with that help? And I said, I can try. And he said, well, when you get out of the meeting, give me a call. And we did that. And we went back and forth like that for a couple of weeks. And Carter started involving me in stuff. And long story, of course, I went back and re-sold the gun. Didn't make as much as I wanted to, but I was able enough to, to pay the light bill. And I found Ooh. a purpose. I found a purpose with an organization that literally saved my life. I'm no longer with them, but an organization that literally saved my life because I saw back then, you know, uh, it was not Zoom. It was a thing called Uvu, you know, and uh, we would get on this Uvu and half the time the video didn't work and you had to go out and buy a camera, you know, stuff you know technology wasn't the cameras weren't built into the laptops or the computer you'd have to buy a camera and you have to buy an extension of a microphone and sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't and sometimes we just resort to just calling but it was a bunch of guys that we just started talking and uh, they just celebrated 10 years of um being in existence and i and I, I, I volunteered for 10 and I became their national program director for a year. And then, you know, about two years ago, I just said, I'm tired. Oh, I was and I've done a lot of advocacy and I'm going to kind of chill out for a while. And I need to let go of some of the organizations that I was on. That was one of them. And they well, weren't too that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but for the for our listeners who may also yeah. need this. Yeah. Black, Black Trans Men Incorporated. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, they're headquartered out in Dallas, Texas. And um, and so uh, I, I left about a year and a half ago, two years ago, um, not not because of anything they did to me, but that I, I I was doing too much. I was I was everywhere. And I was like, I need to I need to. I need to live, you know, um, right. you know, I. I've been this voice, but now I just need to listen to other voices and I need to enjoy the fruits of the labor of what I have, have, have done. And then, uh, and so I'm on very few boards now, but even far away, this organization saved my life and in the streets. And I didn't have to live in the streets because God knows my parents would have didn't want that, but the streets were so addictive to me. And so I was out there. But one of the things that I learned by being out in the street was that if somebody saved you, they always stayed in my back pocket. I never forget what people do did for me. And so I'll never forget what black trans men did for me. That's wonderful. But also, but I also can never ever forget what that community of AA did. Now, you know, I'll talk about the AA community in Charlottesville. It's probably two, 300 strong, but there might be five or six black people. 
And so I would go to meetings and be the I'd be the only black person. My God, my sponsor is this Catholic white woman and, and nothing in common, nothing in common except for we have that commonality that we don't want each other to drink. Right. So I would go to these meetings and I just had to learn not to compare in. And I had to learn that because I'm sitting in this meeting and I'm the only black person, and at one at one point, you know, the only black gay person, lesbian person, and then I threw on them, oh, guess what, ladies and gentlemen, it ain't Char- Charlotte anymore, it's Charlie. And I'm not a female anymore, I'm a male. And so just like my family, this AA family had to adjust to that as well and, and did so beautifully. And And... You know, I've had I've had a privileged transition in saying that was it easy? No, but it wasn't anywhere near what a lot of other people go through. The UVA community, you know, I have great doctors, and every time something happens, I land just other great doctors. Uh, you know, I. And I, I say sometimes maybe maybe I get the quality of treatment and service from them because I've got a big mouth and I'm not as scared to go to the top and, uh, you know, say that things aren't right. And somewhere along the line, this really shy kid found their voice. And I think I found my voice because everything started to align. I got sober, you know, I found this, I found that I was in the wrong gender. And a lot of times I don't, when I'm speaking to different organizations, I don't use a lot of people, a lot of trans people use the term did, did naming, that they had a dead name or they, you know, their life before they transitioned was dead. I don't do that for 50 years. I lived as a female as best as I could, and it didn't work. And so for the next, you know, almost now 13, 14 years since I transitioned, I'm now living who I was supposed to be. But I wasn't dead back then. Um, I didn't have, I I, I wasn't living, but I wasn't dead. And so whatever worked until it couldn't work anymore. And now where I'm at, uh, Candace, I will tell you, I am. I am so happy with my life. I am happy. Uh, I don't need a ton of, I don't, I don't need medication anymore for depression. Uh, and I'm not knocking that. God knows if people need that, go get it. And that's what I let people know. Uh, but I am a confident black man with trans experience well on that positive note i'm glad we're going to end on a positive positive note because we're running out of time yes um just would like to ask you one other question which is what advice would you give somebody or your even what advice would you say to your younger self now knowing what you know um my younger self knowing what i know now is that just trust the process and take it slow you know, uh, there's no a lot of young people today want to get want the transition and they want it quickly. 
You're changing your life. Trust the mental health system. Trust therapists. Get therapy. If you need additional help, get as much mental health as you possibly can. Because the reality is, this is a total shift, a total shift in your whole way of living. And so it's important that you recognize that this is a mental thing as well as physical and that you have to treat that the way that you're going to treat your physical self. Well, Charlie, thank you very much for joining us today on Speaking Candidly with Candace, and for being so candid and open about your life. And we're so happy that uh, you have found happiness. And to all the listeners out there, remember, every cloud has a silver lining. Thank you so much, Candace. All right, we have stopped the recording. And okay. Charlie, thank you for your patience. And oh. again, really appreciate it. I think it's going to be a very helpful podcast for people to listen to. I'm excited. Um, let me know I'll, when you drop it so I can know. I'll, uh, I'll let you know when I drop it. Absolutely. Okay, perfect. Perfect. You have a great day. You too. Okay. All right, take care. Okay. Bye bye.